you were here uh, last week, you would have um, trudged through with us quite one of the more difficult, darkest sort of passages in the Bible as Paul sort of describes the state of the world um, as, as he would have seen it um, and the way God would have described it at that time to the church in Rome. And we sort of looked at, you know, that our world currently is pretty similar in a lot of ways. And ultimately, where he comes down is that they stand guilty before God, as the video says. Now, have you ever, um, have you ever had a sibling? Tell me if this is a family situation that you've had, where you're getting told off by mum or dad, right? Fairly common sort of situation. You're getting told off for something that you've done, and then around the corner behind you is your little brother or sister who probably caused the problem that you're getting told off for in the first place, right? Yeah, track them with me. And they kind of got this little smug little smile on their face, like, oh, you're getting in trouble. Has anyone come across that before? Be honest. Has anyone done that before? Yeah, yeah, there we go. Yeah, we've got to, <laughs> with you, Ian. So there's sometimes like when, when someone's getting in trouble and then the person behind them who is not in trouble just finds so much glee and joy in the person getting in trouble, yeah? This is, this is normal sibling stuff. Well, as we talked about previously, the church in Rome is made up of two sort of distinct groups of people. So um, there were people who were, they were all Christians, but some of them were Christians with a Jewish heritage, okay? So they had grown up as Jews and then accepted Jesus, and so they became Jewish Christians, but they didn't sort of abandon their Judaism. They, they continued being Jews, and so they were both Jews and Christians, which did not was not, was not weird for them at all. It made a total sense. Then you had um, people who were not Jewish, what they called the Gentiles. They uh, had just lived outside of God's community, and then they became Christians, and they learned who Jesus was, and so they became part of the church, right? So there's these two different groups, but there was some infighting between them, between the two different groups about the way that Christians should be. The Jewish Christians were saying, well, that's great that you're Christians. You know, praise God for inviting you into the kingdom. But you need to now take on all of the Jewish traditions and laws and stuff like that because that's what it means to be a Christian. It's an extension of Judaism, right? And the Gentiles are like, no, why would we do that? And so there's all this back and forth fighting and stuff. So when Paul has a go at the Gentile world in the first chapter of Romans... You can kind of imagine the Jewish Christians sitting behind, looking around the corner, going, hee 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 hee. Paul is really telling you guys how badly you have pooped the bed. You guys are terrible people. The Gentiles are horrible. They're rubbish. You guys just mess things up so completely. Oh my goodness, you're the worst. This is why Judaism is so important they would say with their smug little faces. However, Paul then, after having given uh, the Gentiles a good talking to, turns his attention to the Jews. And this is what he says in chapter 2. I'm going to let you sort of roll with the uh, passage with me on the screen. And he says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you pass judgment, do the same things. Now, I want to pause here for a second real quick. Because, first of all, when he says you, he's not just talking about the Jewish 
Christians, but rather sort of representatives of the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, the old way of doing things. Does that make sense? So he's talking about Judaism. And the other thing is when he says you pass judgment on someone else, we kind of get confused about this. We say, well, when you say judge someone, does that mean like you're sort of objectively looking at whether what they're doing is right or wrong? Because that's kind of something that we ought to be doing for people. And he said, no, 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 this is not that. The word, the Greek word, the original word that Paul uses about passing judgment is not just some nice calm saying, this is right, this is wrong, you've kind of done something wrong, okay? It's not that. This is more condemning. This is more like, you idiot, you have messed things up, you're completely wrong, okay? So picking back up, in verse 2 he says, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God knows best, and he knows that this is wrong. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Okay. So he has a go at the Gentile world and then he turns his attention back to the Jews and says, nah, you're not any better, guys. You sit there on your high horse and you say, well, we have the words of God. We got this sorted. Paul, you tell them how bad they are and how sinful and how rubbish they are. Get them, get them, Paul. And Paul turns to them and says, no, 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 no. You do the same things. In fact... It's worse for you because God has given you everything that you needed to live the right life. He gave you his laws. He gave you a sense of who he is. He didn't, you, know, you didn't have to figure out who God was through creation or anything like that, like the Gentiles did. They had to kind of piece it together. And you know what? They didn't and they messed up and that's fine. But you, you were given words. You were given commandments. You were given miracles. God showed you exactly who he was, exactly how to live, and yet, even with that information, you still rejected him, and you still went your own way. Now, the Gentiles are in trouble, but you know what? The Jews are in trouble too. You guys are in the exact same boat. So Paul then goes on in chapter 2 and sort of the first bit of chapter 3, sort of explaining exactly how bad the Jews have become, that they've been given the law, they completely messed it up. Even though they had everything from God, they broke them and now they sit under the judgment of God. And so then in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul comes to this sort of emphatic conclusion to this argument over the last few chapters. He says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage as Jews? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, 
Not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Their poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the day, the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's all very poetic. But you've got to remember, Paul is directly quoting the Old Testament. There's a whole series of quotes there. And the way God has described both the Gentile world and the Jewish world. No one is safe. No one has done this right. Everyone is messed up. Everyone stands guilty before God. Yay, what a positive message, eh? Aren't you just so happy you came this morning? We're all messed up. We're all doomed. So whatever humanity was given by God in order to find him, whether it was what we call general revelation, so creation, basically, where God showed his invisible qualities. We talked about that last week his power, his infinite nature. He put that in creation. So that's general revelation. So whether we were given that to find him or whether we were given what we call specific revelation, which is the words of God, the example of God, the miracles of God. So whether we were given, whether we were specifically chosen by God or whether we were kind of sitting on the outside and watching what was going on, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. None of us took advantage and lived the way God wanted us to live. We all pooped the bed. And so Paul says we all stand before God guilty. No one is righteous, not even one. We're all unworthy of his acceptance. We're all undeserving of his love. We're all unable to earn his favor. But of course, we know that that's not where God leaves us, is it? That's not the space that he puts us in. And he says, you guys are guilty. It's your fault. He could totally walk away at this point. He could totally just put judgment on everybody and we would have earned it. We would have deserved it. No problem. He's like, no, 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 that's not going to work for me. This is not going to work. So he says, I will take the guilt and the rebellion. I will take all of the punishment and I will put it on me or on Jesus. And because of Jesus, now we are able to stand before God innocent, worthy of his love. We are able to be accepted able to be part of his family. Isn't that incredible? Like, it's just an absolute beautiful thing. And we're going to explore a little bit more about that next week. But this was Paul's message to the church in Rome. This is the 2,000 years ago. He said, this is the way it is. So stop bickering amongst yourselves about who's right and who's wrong, who's better, who's worse. Neither of you are any good. None of you fixed it. None of you lived a good life. You're all rubbish, but that's okay because God is good and he sent Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life. He showed us the way that we're supposed to do it. And then he took all of the consequences on you. So don't fight with each other because you 
have, for whatever differences there are between your cultures, between your heritages, your histories, what you have in common is a beautiful story of redemption, of renewal, of coming together, of being loved and accepted and brought into the family of God. How can there be anything else worthy of fighting and dividing over? There's nothing else. That is what brings us together before God. All right, so now that's, of course, 2,000 years ago and these silly Roman church and all of their silly little arguments. We have two millennia of experience now. We've heard this story for 2,000 years. We got it covered. We're all sorted. We know what's going on. Yeah, well, maybe not. So what do you think God's message to us would be out of this? As I was reading through the chapters 2 and 3, I was, um, I was struck by one particular passage that I think translates rather well into our modern concept, uh, context, if I can do a little paraphrasing of it. Um, I think it's an important warning for us as well. See, I think we can... Um, hold up before you put that on, just for a second. I think we can interchange, by the way, the words uh, in this passage, the word Jew, because it was talking about Judaism. I think we can translate the word Christian in here as God's representatives of his message, his word. And we can translate the word Bible for law um, as God's instructions on how to live a godly life. And when we apply this passage to ourselves, you don't take those words out of the Bible, just by the way, that's not what I'm saying. But when we apply it, we can sort of apply some of those words over it. Listen to how this passage in Romans chapter 2 sounds with some of these new words applied. So this is my paraphrase, just to be clear. You can pop that up if you want. It says, Now you, if you call yourself a Christian, if you rely on the Bible and boast in God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the Bible, yes, we are. We would agree with that. We're on board with this. If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, which sounds a little arrogant, but at the same time, that's what we believe God has given us his words to share with people. If you believe you are a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, again, we probably wouldn't use that word, a teacher of little children, because you have in the Bible the embodiment of truth and knowledge, right? We do. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Probably not a lot of us robbing temples, but I think we get the general concept here. You who boast in the Bible, do you dishonor God by breaking the Bible? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed amongst the world because of you. That one's a little stingy. See, here's one of the biggest problems I believe that God had with the, the, the Jewish nation was that they, because they were God's chosen people, right? They were. They were pulled out of all of the nations. God says, I've chosen you from amongst all of the peoples of the world. I'm giving you my special 
my, the special revelation. I'm telling you about myself. I'm giving you these laws. You are going to be the ones through whom the world is saved. So because they were God's chosen people, they had kind of come to maybe subconsciously expect that their association with God was what saved them. It was enough to please God. They didn't have to worry about what they actually did. They didn't have to worry about the actual sins in their lives or the way that they lived their lives. They just were kind of like, if I go through the motions, I do a couple of sacrifices here, I sort of follow the bare minimum of the law, then the fact that I'm God's chosen people, that'll sort me right. I'll be, I'll be okay there. And it leads to a situation where people are arrogant and they are judging others like what Paul was talking about earlier. And they stand on their pedestal and they say, you world are wrong, we are right. And Paul is saying, actually, no, we're all wrong. You've done that as well. And so those were guilty. They were as guilty as anyone else. But because they were God's special people, well, then we're okay. Well, you fast forward to today and we can easily see a similar problem arising in the church, can't we? We can fall into this trap that if I, if I just associate myself with Jesus, okay, if I wear like a, a sort of fish on my, you know, t-shirt or put it on my car or if I have, you know, the church's t-shirt on and I wear that and I say that I go to church and I tell enough people that I go to church on a Sunday morning, then I'm in, right? I'm sorted. This is okay, I don't have to worry about actually giving authority over my life to him. I don't have to worry about actually living the way he wants me to live. I don't have to worry about, you know, loving him with everything that I've got. That's fine. It's not a big deal because I am a Christian. I tick that box on the census boldly and, and you know, proudly. And I go to church at least once a month. And so I'm, I'm sorted, Right? And so we end up with a situation where we've got churches populated with people, a census declaring an army of Christianity, carrying the name of Jesus out into the world, and then living a life so contrary to what God says about himself that the world looks at them and goes, what is the point? What is the point? You don't live life just like I do. So why would I give myself to this situation? Why would, I, why would I give my life to God when, honestly, I can see more good outside of the church than in it? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the world because of you. Or in the words of Brennan Manning, which you've had up on the screen, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him with their lifestyle. And I love this quote. It is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. You all remember that from the DC Talk album? I was like, <laughs> totally. yeah, yeah, okay. Now, this is not meant to be a judgment here on us. A warning, perhaps. This is not meant to be like, oh, man, I come to church and Hamish just dumped on me. You know, I mean, we've all fit this description at one point or another, right? We've all sort of given a little bit of lip service to our faith and we haven't you know, given our full selves to it. I have, so maybe you haven't, but I have. And it's not meant 
to judge and condemn me for the mistakes that I have made. It's all about the response, isn't it? It's all about what happens next. Paul is not laying all of this out so that we can wallow in guilt. He doesn't want that. That's not helpful. It's not good. It's not from God. Instead, what he wants is to spark a conviction to do something better, to live something stronger, to give ourselves more, to accept and appreciate and own the mercy that says that even though I've done that in the past, I'm still good with God. I'm, he's fine with me. But now I've got to start living like it. Now I've got to start giving myself to this. Maybe I just need to start taking this a bit more seriously. It's an invitation for us to step forward, to embrace this good news of Jesus, the gospel. That's what Paul was talking about. With everything that we have, to dive deep into the love and the forgiveness of God. Not just to tick a box, I'm going to heaven when I die, but to embrace this love that calls us to live a different way. It calls us to be part of his family, his community. It, it challenges us and encourages us that this mercy he has shown me comes from a real person, God, a real person that wants us to now live and follow him. It's a beautiful invitation. It honors and celebrates our God and King. This is the point. This is the whole point of the book of Romans. Not that we wallow in what we have not done, but we celebrate and embrace what he has done and then live that way. Yeah? That's what it's all about. All right, I'm going to pray. Lord, I just uh, I thank you so much. You have done so much for us. You know, we, we know, we acknowledge, we sit. And, and like, like Isaiah says we, during communion, we, we recognize that we have not done anything to deserve in our own power your love and acceptance and forgiveness. We have not lived the way that we should have lived. But you have given us mercy. You have given us love and you have given us your Holy Spirit who partners with us and helps us to make better decisions, to live better lives, to live stronger lives, to embrace what you have said to us as the best possible human experience, living under your authority and your love. So Lord, help us to recognize and embrace that, to not be satisfied with just mm. doing the bare minimum, but to to just really find the joy that comes from giving ourselves completely to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.